you wake up bright and alert by six in the morning? Do you fall asleep easily if you go to bed at 9 p.m.? Do you find it hard to stay up until midnight? Find out if you're a lark or an owl in this, the February edition of Look Here. According to the sleep charity, if you answered yes to all three of those questions, you're officially a lark. If, on the other hand, you need to sleep until 11am to wake up feeling bright and alert, then you have trouble falling asleep before midnight, but fall asleep quickly if you go to bed at 1am, then you're an owl. I'm Pippa Curtis, and joining me in our exploration of night and day are Catherine Neal, Hello. Phil Lee Hello. and Jane Fairs. Hello. The sleep charity reckons that about 40% of people are larks and 30% are owls and the rest fit somewhere in between. True morning people and night people find that they tend to be more productive and energetic at different points in the day. Age has something to do with it, it would seem. Young children tend to be larkish, adolescents tend to be owlish, with a peak at age 19 and a half for women and age 21 for men. Older adults tend to be larks. Interestingly, research suggests that larks are likely to be happier, healthier and more satisfied with life than owls, in part because the world favours larks. Owls fall asleep later than larks do and because work, school and young children start early, owls get less sleep, which makes their lives harder. The world is full of people who claim that their success is due to their early rising and who give tips for making yourself a morning person. But true differences do exist. The sleep charities say that instead of trying to change our natures, we should try to change our situation and surroundings to suit us whenever possible. An owl probably shouldn't bother trying to form the habit of getting up early to study, and a lark shouldn't try to fit in two hours of writing after dinner. If you're planning when to exercise, when to do creative work, or when to take it easy, knowing your chronotype can help you set yourself up for success. So, how long is a day? We all know the answer to that, don't we, Phil? We're very accustomed to the daily cycle on our planet. The Earth spins anti-clockwise on its axis, beginning the day with the sun rising in the east and eventually setting in the west. That takes us into night and finally to a new day, with the sun rising once again. However... The length of a day can be defined in two ways, a sidereal day and a solar day. The time it takes for a planet to spin once so that the stars appear in the same position again in the night sky is known as a sidereal day. On the Earth, that is 23 hours, 56 minutes and 4 seconds. Although astronomers sometimes use the sidereal day as a passage of time, in our everyday lives we're more familiar with the idea of a solar day. A solar day is the amount of time it takes for a planet to spin on its axis so that the sun appears in the same position in the daytime sky, typically when the sun is on the local meridian. For the Earth, a solar day is 24 hours long on average. 
A solar day is longer than a sidereal day because not only is the Earth spinning on its axis, anti-clockwise, but it's also orbiting around the Sun, also anti-clockwise. The result of this is that it takes slightly longer each day, about four minutes, for the Sun to appear in the same part of the sky as it did the previous day. A 24-hour solar day is also considered an average because the Earth has an eccentric orbit around the Sun. It's not a perfect circle. It doesn't move at a constant speed throughout its orbit, and so the length of the solar day varies daily. Different planets have different lengths of day. Mars is a planet with a very similar daily cycle to the Earth. Its sidereal day is 24 hours, 37 minutes and 22 seconds. And its solar day, 24 hours, 39 minutes and 35 seconds. A Martian day is therefore approximately 40 minutes longer than a day on Earth. On Mercury, a day lasts 1,408 hours, and on Venus, it lasts 5,832 hours. The gas giants rotate really fast. Jupiter takes just 10 hours to complete one rotation, while Saturn takes 11 hours. Neptune takes 16 hours, and Uranus, 17 so, Phil, if my maths is right, if you lived on Venus and had breakfast in the morning on January the 1st, you wouldn't get lunch until the middle of February? And no supper till June. And then nothing until breakfast the following January? I think I'd be raiding the fridge long before that. After all, there's nothing like a midnight feast. Catherine? Who was it that came up with that perfect phrase, midnight feast? And who doesn't have at least one treasured memory of this most romantic eating experience? This is written by Catherine Phipps and it appeared in The Guardian in 2011. The elements necessary for the best midnight feasts are, of course, that it be clandestine, ideally the setting romantically lit by moon and a roaring fire, and excitement. I can recall one actual experience that came close, A full day driving through France in my parents' clapped-out VW polo was rewarded by a six-course extravaganza which lasted until about 4am. However, the food isn't always important, with occasion making the plainest of food taste wonderful. I have one memory of being woken up in the middle of the night to see the garden lit up by the snow which had fallen since bedtime and thoroughly enjoying hot cocoa and biscuits. Children, imaginations and adventurous spirits fired by every school story from Mallory Towers to Harry Potter, plan daring kitchen raids. They're an integral part of the sleepover, whatever age, and even adults will indulge in furtive Nigella-esque eating. Most of my late-night forays as a child and teenager were to fuel all-night reading sessions. When I could hear my dad snoring, I'd sneak downstairs and raid the kitchen. Pausing only to dip into the condensed milk kept in the fridge, I'd nab hunks of strong cheddar to be consumed with either thickly buttered malt loaf or a stack of digestive biscuits, pork pies with Branston or pickled onions, and if no chocolate was forthcoming, rubbery cubes of round trees jelly. Riskier still was getting into the kitchen after a dinner party as the adults would still be up, but the pickings would be much richer. A charity cookbook published in 2011 included suggestions from a number of chefs 
most of whom recognise that often the best midnight snacks should be simple affairs. Here are some of their ideas. Fergus Henderson advocates eating tinned sardines in bed in the dark. Although Prue Leith does not recommend sardines with condensed milk, which apparently is something popular in South African boarding schools. Samantha Clark suggests a two-ingredient wonder, chorizo cooked with sherry, while Rose Gray insists that we should have her chocolate and ginger cake at the ready in case the midnight munches strike. The recipes tend towards indulgent carbohydrates and protein. There's little green to be had. After all, who'd want to prepare salad late at night? And while a regular diet of carbs and protein might be not very good for us, perhaps that's the point. Midnight feasts are enjoyable because they take place once in a blue moon. Once in a blue moon. What exactly is a blue moon, Jane? A blue moon occurs once every two or three years and is when two full moons appear in the same month. Throughout history, people have used the moon and the light it reflects for different tasks, like hunting, planting and harvesting. And cultures across the world give these full moons different names to fit in with what is happening in that month. January's full moon is called a wolf moon, a title given it by Native Americans and medieval Europeans because wolves howled more at this time of the year on account of there being less food for them. The snowy weather of February in North America led to that month's moon being named a snow moon. Other common names include storm moon and hunger moon. The worm moon appears in March, at the end of winter when little creatures like worms start squirming out of the ground. It's also called milk moon. Disappointingly, April's pink moon isn't actually pink. It's named after the pink flowers of the wild ground flocks, which bloom in early spring. It's also called egg moon and fish moon in other countries. May's spring flowers are the reason for this month's moon being named the flower moon. Other names include the hair moon, the corn planting moon, and the milk moon. June's moon is the strawberry, honey, rose or mead moon. July is the time for a thunder moon, or if you live amongst herds of deer, it would be a buck moon when males grow their full set of antlers. August is a good time to catch sturgeon, hence sturgeon moon to fishermen or grain moon to others. September, of course, hosts the harvest moon and can be a brighter moon than normal, apparently, so that farmers can carry on with their harvesting late at night. October's moon is also called harvest moon sometimes, but country folk laying up stocks for winter might prefer its other name, a hunter's moon. No prizes for guessing why November's moon is a frost moon. In a more temperate environment, perhaps, it's known as a beaver moon. December, of course, is blessed with a cold moon or long night moon and also an oak moon. The last blue moon was in August 2021 
with the next one scheduled for 2026. As Richard Nixon said, we shall return to the moon later. But before we leave it for the moment, here's a poem by Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson had been a sickly child, suffering from a weak chest, and as a youngster he spent much time confined to his bed. It was this experience that inspired him in later life to write his Child's Garden of Verses, a collection of poems romanticising his observations from the vantage point of his nursery bed, his Land of Counterpane, as he entitled one of the poems. Back in the late 70s, singer-songwriter Mike Moran took some of the verses and set them to music for the theatre. BBC producer David Rose then adapted the show for broadcast under the title Penny Whistles. After having worked on the broadcast, John Plush was given a recording of the music tracks, including Moran's version of Stevenson's The Moon. Mike Moran on guitar, singing his version of Robert Louis Stevenson's poem, The Moon, with an accompaniment by John. We're very grateful to Mike for his personal permission to use his work. More theatre now, Shakespeare. The third-year students of the University of Worcester's drama course perform part of Act 3, Scene 5 of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Bow, 
be gone. It's not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Nightly she sings on yon pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. It was the lark, the herald of the morn. No nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Night's candles are burnt out and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. I must be gone and live, or stay and die. Yon light is not daylight, I know it I. It's some meteor that the sun exhaled to be to thee this night a torchbearer and light thee on thy way to Mantua. Therefore stay yet, thou needs not to be gone. Let me be ta'en, let me be put to death, I am content. So thou wilt have it so. I'll say yon grey is not the morning's eye. Tis but the pale reflex of Cynthia's brow. Nor that it is not the lark whose notes do beat the vaulty heaven so high above our heads. I have more care to stay and will to go. Come, Dev, and welcome. Juliet wills it so. How is my soul? Let's talk. It is not day. It is, it is. Hi, hence, be gone, away. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. Some say the lark makes sweet the vision. This doth not so, for she divideth us. Some say the lark and loathed toad changed eyes. Oh, now I would they had changed voices too, since arm from arm that voice doth us affray. Hunting thee hence with hunts up to the day. Oh, now be gone, more light and light it grows. More light and light, more dark and dark are woes. Madam, madam. Nurse? Your lady mother is coming to your chamber. The day is broke. Be wary, look about. Then, window, let day in and let life out. Farewell, farewell, one kiss, and I'll descend. About the same time of night, but a few hundred years later, LMS Royal Scot Class 6115 otherwise known as the Scots Guardsman Steam Locomotive, was in the throes of hauling a cargo of overnight post from London to Glasgow. The so-called Postal Special Train was celebrated in a documentary made by the Post Office Film Unit in 1936. The film featured some very well-known verse written especially for it by W.H. Auden, entitled Night Mail. Phil. This poem is written with a very special rhythm. It's the rhythm of a train hauled by a steam engine, and the meter evokes its laboured beats as it climbs uphill in the Pennines and then speeds up, as does the train, rushing down to the major Scottish cities. This is the night mail crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, the girl next door. Pulling up Betuk, a steady climb, the gradients against her, but she's on time. Past cotton grass and moorland boulder, shoveling white steam over her shoulder. 
Snorting noisily, she passes silent miles of wind-bent grasses. Birds turn their heads as she approaches, stare from bushes at her blank-faced coaches. Sheepdogs cannot turn her course, they slumber on with paws across. In the farm she passes, no one wakes, but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. Dawn freshens, her climb is done. Down towards Glasgow she descends, towards the steam tugs yelping down a glade of cranes, towards the fields of apparatus, the furnaces, set on the dark plain like gigantic chessmen. All Scotland waits for her. In dark glens, beside pale green locks, men long for news. Letters of thanks, letters from banks, letters of joy from girl and boy, receipted bills and invitations to inspect new stock or to visit relations, and applications for situations and timid lovers' declarations, and gossip, gossip from all the nations, news circumstantial, news financial, letters with holiday snaps to enlarge in, letters with faces scrawled on the margin, letters from uncles, cousins and aunts, letters to Scotland from the south of France, letters of condolence to highlands and lowlands. Written on paper of every hue, the pink, the violet, the white and the blue, the chatty, the catty, the boring, adoring, the cold and official and the hearts outpouring, clever, stupid, short and long, the typed and the printed and the spelt all wrong. Thousands are still asleep, dreaming of terrifying monsters, or a friendly tea beside the band in Cranston's or Crawford's. Asleep in work in Glasgow, asleep in well-set Edinburgh, asleep in granite Aberdeen. They continue their dreams, but she'll wake soon and hope for letters, and none will hear the postman's knock without a quickening of the heart, for who can bear to feel himself forgotten? The film ends with the country waking up to a new day. The camera does not feature the rising of the sun. We need to look once more to Robert Louis Stevenson for that. Great is the sun, and wide he goes through empty heaven with repose, and in the blue and glowing days, more thick than rain, he showers his rays. Though closer still the blinds we pull to keep the shady parlour cool, yet he will find a chink or two to slip his golden fingers through. The dusty attic spider-clad he, through the keyhole, maketh glad, and through the broken edge of tiles, into the laddered hayloft smiles. Meantime his golden face around he bears to all the garden ground, and sheds a warm and glittering look among the ivy's inmost nook. Above the hills, along the blue, round the bright air with footing true, to please the child, to paint the rose, the gardener of the world, he goes. Robert Louis Stevenson's Summer Sun, read by Tim Curtis. Stevenson describes our star as the gardener of the world. Our star gardeners, Vonya Carlton and Mike Lane, are here to shed some light on what to do in your garden this February. January brings the snow, makes your feet and fingers glow. February brings the... Rain. 
<laughs> but the yes. snowdrops are peeping through. That is it. And, and other bulbs yeah, coming. There's some good signs of spring Absolutely. coming in the garden yeah. already. And so. the fence is still standing. Yes, it is. Your fence is standing incredibly well. Um, there's so many fences which have fallen down with these high winds. So it's always worth checking. Just wander around and give your post a bit of a rattle. Uh, look at your fence panels to see whether they're damaged and they need replacing. Because mm -hmm. this is a good time now, really, whilst the plants are still dormant. Yes, because as soon as those plants blossom and get large, it's a bit difficult to even get to the fence Exactly, isn't it? exactly, yeah. What about tools and things like tools, that? Tools, yes, yeah, definitely worthwhile getting that, that mower service. And what about the other tools? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit naughty, really. I do put them away without cleaning them properly. Cleaning them, yes, yeah, de de definitely get them out, knock off any of the old mud. And sometimes even just give them a, a bit of a spray with WD-40 as well. Stop them rusting? Stop them rusting, yeah, yeah. and then you can hang them back, back mm. on. Um, it's a good time as well to give that shed a good tidy up. If you do it now, then it's, it's you know, at least it's done yes. for the year and you know where everything is. Yeah, it's too early to plant, but apart from seeds. Seeds, yeah, we, we can start thinking um, about bedding plants. Mid to late February is not a bad time to start planting seeds. So what seeds would you suggest? Yeah, yeah I mean, we could start planting things like uh, sweet peas, morning glory. Sweet peas. Um, poppies, always good. And cornflowers. This time of the year, whatever we plant uh, you know, in the seed tray or even in a small pot, mm -hmm. it's going to need some heat. Well, I have been given a very interesting um, heated seed tray okay so yep. the seed tray actually sits on another tray which is heated from beneath great and then there's a little hood that goes on top mm -hmm. which you it has a an air vent which you can open to let some air in yeah close it Good. and you plug it in and off you yep. go I suppose. yeah so 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 look towards the end of the month let's let's get some seeds in ready for pricking out early april mid-april and then get them in the ground in the middle of may ideally towards yes. the end of may I, yeah. I really favour those seeds that are on strips. Yeah, this on the seed tape. So you don't have any of the fiddle. That's it. Because, you know, we are scattering seeds. You don't know how many are going no. in, do you? So no. it's much better if you just lay the tape down and the seeds are placed on the placed tape. Placed on top they? and then water it in. And the top tip is remember <laughs> what seeds you have planted. <laughs> and, and, and where. And where. And, <laughs> and so make sure you have labelled Okay. So it does say tomatoes or marigolds or yes. whatever. So yeah. when stuff starts to come up, you we know, know what exactly it is. what it is. <laughs> so that's all the inside jobs. Okay. Um, yeah. There's plenty of stuff we can be doing outside as well, mm. such as there's always buddleias around. Buddleias are fantastic. You know the, bu the the butterfly bush. They're very easy to grow. Mm. They are quick growing as well, and they can take over very quickly. They get leggy, Mike. Yes. Yeah. So what I would recommend is cutting them down to next to nothing, basically. Really? Take them down as low as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and this will encourage the new growth, probably get to one metre, if not a metre and a half. Yes. And it will flower, you get the scent, and you get the butterflies. Beautiful. And much the same as things like alders as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Cut them down to ground level. Yeah. and then let them come back because okay. if not they will take over a space yes yeah what yeah. about roses is it too soon to be cutting them back roses now D don't be don't be afraid i always say with roses don't be afraid cut them down um 
as low as possible potentially or to whatever you feel is, is, is the right height for your garden and they will recover and grow back. Yeah. Let's not get too hooked up on, yes, cut, on cut, pruning on as pruning such. As yeah. such. Yeah. Um, we are frightened mm. about causing damage, but really 90% of the time it, it'll grow back. Yeah, and it so, will flourish yeah. probably. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, fruit canes. Now, yep. my raspberries fruited as you know, quite late October, yeah. November. Yeah. They've obviously finished now, finished a long time ago. I need to cut all the dead cane out right down to the ground, don't I? I would, yes. Now's the time to Now's do Now's the it. time to do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about blackberries? Yeah, the unspiky version. Yeah, sort the, of like the you know, nice domestic ones. Yeah, yeah. Treat, treat it a bit like a climber. Okay. Just cut it back to where you feel, feel comfortable. You know, just train it. Okay. to, to yeah. how, however you would like I wanted yeah. to go yeah. Yeah. and all the cane that had the fruit of last year should come out should come out yeah. yes okay. there's lots of other things as well such as um, some of the herbaceous stuff now we can look at um, splitting those yes uh, so basically that, that means digging it up well, you dig the whole thing out dig the whole thing up I'm always scared of doing this because yeah. you know, it yeah. just seems so awful like putting your, your spade through the centre that's it that's it but don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Dig them up and then just chop it. Yes. And then you can replant those chopped bits around the garden. Yes. Now's the time to be yeah. out there digging it up. Good idea. Um, it's just nice to be out in the garden with a cup of tea, just listening to the birds tweeting away. Gorgeous. Um, it is quite pleasant. So, talking of this cup of tea. Yeah. Do you think it's about time that we put the brew on? I think, yes. Yeah. Let's go indoors. <laughs> okay, then, Mike. Come on. Come on. Cheers. Mike Lane and Vonya Carlton. The winter solstice, the longest night of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, falls on December the 21st or 22nd. Since ancient times, this important astronomical occurrence and the consequent return of the sun is recognised in a variety of different ways by people all over the world, including here in Worcester. John Plush found himself up on a hill in Fort Royal Park one evening just before Christmas. It's getting on for four o'clock in the afternoon here in Fort Royal Park, and I'm surrounded in the gathering twilight by an awful lot of people. Some of them have a colourful costume or lit-up headdress. Most of them have either a bright lantern in their hand or a potentially very loud musical instrument. And all of them have a big smile on their face. I found one of the organisers of this extraordinary scene. Councillor Lynn Denham, what's going on? We're doing winter solstice um, and it's a really special event that uh, we absolutely love in Fort Royal Park. You can stand at the top of the park and see the sun set on the shortest day of the year. So we have um, a celebration and music and we're saying goodbye to last year and looking forward to the new year and to longer days. It's, it's the sort of pagan new year, really. Good people of Worcester! We turn our faces, hoping for that last ray. The man with the big voice is Master of Ceremonies, Ian Cragen. How do you describe your role in this celebration? 
part shaman and part bully. But it's about ensuring that everybody comes together at the right time and so that there are moments of stillness and moments of activity, moments of contemplation and moments of genuine belly laugh because that's what we are as humans. We're just happy laughing monkeys that, we, that need each other. And so that's, uh, that's why I offer what I can offer. It has become a little oasis in the middle of a bit of madness. Um, I'm a Christian. I look forward to celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. But I think it's important that we also engage with all the other ways of thinking about our lives and our relationship to the universe. We're a band called the Orchard Band and we play for Kayleys and barn dances and, and outdoor events. This is Jane and Seb. I play a thing called a melodeon which is a kind of traditional English instrument. It's a bit like two harmonicas side by side. Um, so it's a bizarre instrument, but a lot of English music was written to it, so it sounds quite good. In the crowd with me here are Jody and Dan, both of whom are sight impaired. Dan, can I ask you, what do you make of these winter solstice festivities? Would you recommend this to other visually impaired people? Yeah, I would. It's, it's a really good, good experience. Uh, this is my third time, so... Uh, yeah, it's good. You need to sort of move where the crowd is going, and that's not always obvious, but uh, it's, it's fine, you know, it's yeah, good. You can hear lots of the folk sounds. Obviously, if you believe in the pagan side of it, which I do, then it's nice as well. So. It's good. It's worth, it's worth coming out. And so, still brandishing our lanterns, we form a long procession and disappear into the sunset. Bringing people together in the middle of what is a bit of nonsense and helping them to be calm feels like a good thing to do. Worcester's welcome to the longer, and soon we hope warmer, days of spring. Jane. Back in 1965, I was a WPC, Woman Police Constable, for those more used to the present all-encompassing PC. I did night duty on A Division, which covered Whitehall, the Houses of Parliament, the now old Scotland Yard, Hyde Park, Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace and Knightsbridge. That's not all, though. If a woman police officer was needed somewhere else in London and there was no one available in the vicinity... I was it. My base was Gerald Row, now no longer functioning as a police station. At 9.30pm, I would arrive to take over from the late-turn WPC who worked from 2pm till 10pm. I worked from 10pm till 6 the next morning. It was quite flexible, as it depended on what happened during your tour of duty. Dixon, the station cat, worked all hours and slept for most of them in inconvenient places. It was usually quiet, unless it was New Year's Eve in Trafalgar Square, which generally involved arrests. Most people were law-abiding. The St Martin's side of the square and Charing Cross were in City of London territory. 
So, if a drunk that you were keen not to arrest could be ushered across the road, it was done. Mainly because arresting someone on night duty meant you were in court at Bow Street at 10am the next morning instead of in bed. Unfortunately, the City of London Police often returned the person. It depended on which side he or she ended up at the end of the night. I can remember arresting Sarah Churchill, Winston Churchill's daughter, violent when drunk but very pleasant, apologetic and the epitome of a lady when she and I attended Bow Street the next morning. I believe Sarah did serve time in Holloway when the arrests became too regular. Before digitisation and tape recordings, statements were written out and the charge sheet was typed out on an old manual typewriter. I can remember the typewriter being thrown at me by one individual and the station sergeant picking it up and saying, just add that offence to the list, will you? Card indexes were kept at Old Scotland Yard for children and young persons who were missing. I remember many an hour manning those and peering out of the window to a silent Whitehall. On Whitehall itself, if you were lucky and a ceremonial was in the offing, a small black coach with one horse, a driver and a man with a stopwatch sitting inside, clip-clopped by to make sure everything ran to the minute on the day. In the early hours of the morning, just before it got light, the water wagons would arrive to wash the main streets around Whitehall and Parliament Square. I wonder whether they still do that. To while away the time, I used to go over to Downing Street and chat to the officer on duty there or go to Carlton House Terrace on report of a break-in. What a palace, a ballroom and chandeliers, all in darkness and empty. No electricity, switched off, so the van driver and I were creeping round in the dark. Needless to say, we did not find anyone. They were probably long gone. One night, I was picked up and taken to Greenwich, over the River Thames, and it was a murder. Needless to say, I did not know what I would be faced with. It was not the blood and guts I had expected. A woman had been charged with the murder of her husband who suffered from MS. They had decided they would both commit suicide together and had carefully collected tablets to do so. Her husband had become so much worse that he knew he would not be able to swallow the pills if they left it much longer. They only had pills enough for one person so his wife gave them to him and helped him to swallow them. She sat with him until he died and then phoned the police. I stayed with her and went to court in the morning. I heard later that the charge had been dropped quietly. Back at base, I found that Dixon the cat had eaten the ham out of the sandwiches I had stupidly left on my desk. Oh well... Time to get a lift in the police van back to Notting Hill where I was living in a police section house made up of rather elegant Victorian townhouses. Bed at last. It all sounds fascinating, some of it magical even. Almost as magical as the stuff of dreams that the young boy in our next piece discovered, also in the middle of the night, in Philippa Pierce's children's novel Tom's Midnight Garden. The book was first published in 1958 and won the annual Carnegie Medal from the Library Association 
for the year's Outstanding Children's Book by a British author. John Rowe Townsend wrote of it, If I were asked to name a single masterpiece of English children's literature since the Second World War, it would be this outstandingly beautiful and absorbing book. Catherine. The Long family live in a townhouse with a garden, modest in size, but much loved by their sons Peter and Tom. At the beginning of the book, we're told that Peter has recently caught the measles, and in order not to catch it too, his brother Tom is packed off to stay for a while with their aunt and uncle, the Kitsons, who live in a small first-floor flat with no outdoor facilities at all, much to Tom's dismay. The main hall downstairs contains nothing but a large old grandfather clock belonging to their landlady, old Mrs Bartholomew. The clock keeps good time and chimes very loudly, loudly enough to keep people awake at night, including Tom, who agrees in deference to his hosts to stay in bed nevertheless for at least ten hours every night and not wander about. One night, Tom hears the clock strike thirteen, and despite his promise, overcome by curiosity, steals down to the hallway to find out what hour is actually being displayed on the clock's face. If he opened the door at the far end of the hall, at the back of the house, that is, he would let the moonlight in. With luck, there might be enough light for him to read the clock face. He moved down the hall to the door at its far end. It was a door he'd never seen opened, the Kitsons used the door at the front. They said that the door at the back was only a less convenient way to the street through a backyard, a strip of paving where dustbins were kept and where the tenants of the ground floor flat garaged their car under a tarpaulin. Never having had occasion to use the door, Tom had no idea how it might be secured at night. If it were locked and the key kept elsewhere... But it was not locked, he found, only bolted. He drew the bolt and very slowly, to make no sound, turned the doorknob. Hurry, whispered the house, and the grandfather clock at the heart of it beat an anxious tick, tick. Tom opened the door wide and let in the moonlight. It flooded in as bright as daylight, the white daylight that comes before the full rising of the sun. The illumination was perfect, but Tom did not at once turn to see what it showed him of the clock face. Instead, he took a step forward onto the doorstep. He was staring at first in surprise, then with indignation at what he saw outside. That they should have deceived him, lied to him like this. They'd said, it's not worth your while going out at the back, Tom. So carelessly they'd described it. A sort of backyard, very pokey with rubbish bins. Really, there's nothing to see. Nothing. Only this. A great lawn where flower beds bloomed, a towering fir tree and thick beetle-browed yews that humped their shapes down two sides of the lawn. On the third side, to the right, a greenhouse almost the size of a real house. From each corner of the lawn, a path that twisted away to some other depths of garden with other trees. Tom had stepped forward instinctively, catching his breath in surprise, now he let his breath out in a deep sigh. He would steal out here tomorrow by daylight. They'd tried to keep this from him, but they couldn't stop him now. Not his aunt, not his uncle, 
nor the bat-flat tenants, not even old Mrs Bartholomew. He would run full tilt over the grass, leaping the flower beds. He would peer through the glittering panes of the greenhouse, perhaps open the door and go in. He would visit each alcove and archway clipped in the yew trees. He would climb the trees and make his way from one to another through thickly interlacing branches. When they came calling him, he would hide, safe and silent as a bird, among this richness of leaf and bough and tree trunk. The scene tempted him even now. It lay so inviting and clear before him. Clear-cut from the stubby leaf-pins of the nearer yew-trees to the curled-back petals of the hyacinths in the crescent-shaped corner beds. Yet Tom remembered his promise of ten hours of sleep. Regretfully, he turned from the garden, back indoors, to read the grandfather clock. He recrossed the threshold, still absorbed in the thought of what he'd seen outside. He closed the door after a long look. I shall come back, he promised silently to the trees and the lawn and the greenhouse. Upstairs again, in bed, he pondered more calmly on what he'd seen. Tomorrow he would go into it. He almost had the feel of tree trunks between his hands as he climbed. He could almost smell the heavy blooming of the hyacinths in the corner beds. He remembered that smell from home indoors from his mother's bulb pots at Christmas and the New Year, outside in their flower bed in the late spring. He fell asleep, thinking of home. It's always struck me as ironic that the tough television interviewer Robin Day was a knight, and in his autobiography he remembers the dawn of his career. He writes, The date was Sunday the 23rd of February, 1958. The interview was live. I was sitting in a small studio at Television House, Kingsway, in London. On the other side of the table was the Right Honourable Harold Macmillan, MP. TV cameras usually go to Prime Ministers at number 10 Downing Street. On this occasion, the Prime Minister had come to the TV studios, which added to the tension. As we waited to begin, the Prime Minister derived considerable amusement from the seating arrangements. He dryly complained that he was sitting on a hard upright seat, whereas I was enthroned behind the table in a comfortable swivel chair with well-padded arms. This, said the Prime Minister, seemed to symbolise the new relationship between politician and TV interviewer. He felt as if he was on the mat I offered to change chairs, but the Prime Minister, keeping up the banter, said, No, no, I know my place. The occasion was a weekly interview programme put out on Sunday evenings by ITN, the news service of the commercial television network. Mr Macmillan was then in the early period of his premiership. It was just a year since he had taken over from Sir Anthony Eden following the Suez fiasco. My interview with Macmillan lasted 13 minutes. It was by far the most important interview I had done with a British politician. It was the moment when my life as a political journalist on TV really began. There were banner headlines on the front pages next morning. 
The interview with Harold Macmillan was historic and unprecedented. No one had previously interrogated a Prime Minister in this way outside Parliament. Neither Sir Winston Churchill nor Clement Attlee would have thought of giving an interview on radio, the medium of their time, let alone on television. Sir Anthony Eden had been first to tip a toe into the water. He had used TV for addresses to the nation and in party broadcasts. He'd been interviewed for TV only briefly, as at airports, and Macmillan had done likewise. This then was the first time a Prime Minister had been vigorously questioned on television. The interview was also the first in which a Prime Minister had been questioned by a single interviewer, apart from brief interviews at airports. Two days earlier, Macmillan had been questioned in an anodyne BBC programme by three newspapermen, charitably described in The Times as a restrained group. But the interview on ITN was according to Derek Marks of the Daily Express, the most vigorous cross-examination a Prime Minister has been subjected to in public. I later heard that Macmillan himself referred to this interview as the first time he had really mastered television. The significance of my ITN interview with Macmillan is difficult to convey today. Here was the nation's leader, the most powerful and important politician of the time, coming to terms with the new medium of television. He was questioned on TV as vigorously as in Parliament. His TV performance that Sunday evening was an early recognition that television was not merely for entertainment or party propaganda, but was now a serious part of the democratic process. So that occasion in 1958 was a watershed in the premiership of Harold Macmillan and in the development of TV journalism. It was also the moment when I realised that being a TV journalist was to make me a figure of controversy at the centre of political events. I had been in television for only two and a half years. I was now into orbit. Phil has been steeplechasing again. Welcome to St Nicholas Church at Warndon, the second in our series of steeple chasing. You might remember that we went to Oddingley Church last time, and when we did that, it was a good sight warmer than it is now. We're going to walk round to the southern side of the church. It's always easy to tell, incidentally, which is the south side of the church, because all Christian churches are laid out on an east-west axis. The altar's always at the east end, and usually, as in this case, the tower is at the west end. We've got a timber tower here. They do say that there are some lead musket balls in this timber tower from the English Civil War, but I've had a quick look round and I can't find any. So let's go on round. I brought you round here so that I can talk to you a little bit about the scratch dial that's on this side of the church. Later on in our programme, you, you may hear me talking about medieval times and how they used to uh, tell time in the age before clocks. And what we've got here is a scratch dial, which is a series of incisions on the southern wall uh, radiating out from a central point and a metal spike sticking out so that when the sun shines on it, there's a shadow cast to tell us what time it is. And folks in that period would have used this to tell what time the next church service would be. 
The first thing that strikes us inside this church is that it's made up of wooden pews and they are benches which are surrounded by wooden shuttering, wooden partitioning, which comes up to about waist high. And they're all numbered uh, from one up to what looks to be about 16 or 17. One of them is signed the Parsons Pew. One right up at the front is the Rector's Pew. Now, the Rector would have been the priest here. And the interesting thing about this pew is not only is it right at the front, but the seats go around all four sides. So somebody must have been sitting with their back to the altar and their back to the priest too. The numbers on the pews are incidentally because they would have been rented out. You would have paid what was called pew rent and well-to-do families would have uh, had their pews towards the front. If we go down to the west end of the church, we'll see that there are a list of people who were rectors here, just to give us a bit of background. And we can pick out a few names that we might know something about. If we go back to the 17th century, we find Thomas Wilde. Now, Thomas Wilde became rector here in January 1642, which was a rather unfortunate time to become rector here, really, because it was the date at which the English Civil War broke out. And this church and Warnden Court next door were actually occupied by parliamentary troops. We, are, of course, are great friends of Thomas Wilde because that's the Wilde family that came from the commandery after which Wilde's Lane is named. Another name that's familiar to me uh, comes later on towards the end of the 19th century, and that's Francis John Eld, M.A. Now, Francis John Eld was not only rector here, but headmaster of the Royal Grammar School. Uh, a, a remarkable man, very skilled in astronomy, and also founded Worcester Rugby Club back in 1871. The, the church has been here, they think, since the 8th century. Um, it got its modern shape in about the 13th century, and it's really quite a simple structure. The, the ceiling is a, a, a round barrel vault uh, with very sturdy bits of timber running across it. We've got some lovely stained glass windows here, and I think perhaps we might dwell on that for a, for a moment. We've got a mother and child. It's an exact copy of one at Fladbury, and the one at Fladbury has lasted rather better than this. The colours are a bit brighter and a bit more strident. But what we've got is mother and child. They're both holding pieces of fruit. Now, that makes it rather odd and unusual. Mary is offering the Christ child an apple, and that's to signify the, uh, the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, to remind us that Christ came on earth to help us redeem our sins. Christ, more interestingly, is holding a pomegranate, and he's offering that pomegranate to Mary. Now, a pomegranate is a symbol of the church itself, um, and signifies, um, being as it is a pomegranate made up of an awful lot of seeds, that the church is a unifying force, all those seeds in just one piece of fruit. Under that, we've got St. Peter and St. Paul. St. Peter is holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And both of them are looking up at the Christ child and Mary. So it looks like that's the original position of them. I don't know quite how they survived because in 1642 and 43, parliamentary troops wrecked a lot of this place. I'm just noticing that there are very sturdy wooden balustrades around the altar and the Puritans in the Parliamentarian Army would have hated that and it would have torn them down and destroyed them. The font's right by the north door. That's a deliberate uh, thing because 
they believed that uh, once the devil saw someone being baptized, he would flee from the church. So they put it right next to the door to enable him to do that all the quicker. It's a heptagonal font. It's very old. It's 1485. That's the Battle of Bosworth date. So it's going back a fair bit to the beginning of the Tudor period. High up on the wall, there's a rather resplendent board uh, giving details of people who've made charitable donations to the parish in the past. And the top one says, Miss Barry bequeathed to the parish £50, the interest from which to be expended in bread to be distributed by the minister to the poor on Christmas Day forever. Isn't that wonderful bit of confidence in the future there? Well, that's St Nicholas Church at Walden. I hope that you'll join us next time we go steeplechasing. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Jane read Robert Frost's Acquainted with the Night. Catherine. Mornings. A set routine in the morning is a great way to start your day. The brain is an incredible organ, but it has its limits. Apparently, according to Anna Borges, writing in Self magazine, there's a lot of research that suggests that willpower is a limited resource. At some point in the day, one's willpower reserves run dry, and it becomes a lot harder to turn down appealing forms of instant gratification. So you may find yourself skipping mowing the lawn in favour of sipping a glass of wine in a deck chair. Willpower-depleting decisions are unavoidable, of course. Our lives are full of them. And that's where a good morning routine comes in. When we automate our mornings, we develop habits which make it easier to get out of bed or go downstairs to feed the cat. Decision-making takes a similar toll on the brain, so having a set routine saves you having to decide what to do next, clean your teeth, have a shower, and so on. Those micro-decisions add up. The more you can have on autopilot, the better. One valuable thing that one can make a part of a morning routine is making your bed. More than merely saving one of your willpower tokens, this can have positive repercussions throughout your day. Retired Navy Admiral William H. McRaven once said, If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Borges also recommends having a full body stretch to get your blood flowing. Although stretching properly to avoid injury is extra important, especially first thing in the morning, when you might be stiff and not properly warmed up. Drinking a glass of water, she adds, gets the whole process started, 
a chance to rehydrate after seven or eight dry hours. Some put a glass of water ready on the bedside table, so even if you don't touch it in the night, it's there ready for the morning. For some people, an ideal morning is a protected bubble wherein work isn't allowed. But for others, it's the perfect time to get some planning done before becoming distracted by the inevitable deluge of emails or meetings, claims Borges. When you take the time to write out or review your game plan for the day, you're once again getting ahead of making decisions based on your mood. This is great for productivity, but planning is important on a larger scale too. In his book Essentialism, Greg McCowan writes, When we don't purposely and deliberately choose where to focus our energies and time, other people, our bosses, our colleagues, our clients, and even our families, will choose for us, and before long we'll have lost sight of everything that's meaningful and important. Apparently, Borges starts her day by playing Pokemon while drinking her first coffee. Making time for something fun and silly, she claims, helps me conceptualise the morning as its own unique segment of my day, rather than just a prelude to work, which in turn makes it easier to wake up because my alarm clock no longer signifies the beginning of the daily grind, but the start of a two-hour chunk that is peaceful and focused on me time. That's one way to avoid using up all your willpower first thing in the morning. When he's not chasing around the country after interesting church buildings, Phil reads. Thinking about various aspects of night and day for our broadcast took me down some odd by-roads and coincided with a book I was reading about attitudes to time in the days before clocks and just when they were making an appearance. So I thought I'd share with you some of the things that I came across. One truth we need to grapple with from the beginning is that before the invention of the railways, time was an imprecise and local matter. It didn't really matter what time it was in medieval times, when the day was regulated by light, when there was work, and dark, when there was sleep. People took their time from the local church, with no reference to time elsewhere in the county or country. Therefore, in each and every place, the time was different. You might want to know when to be in church, and most churches had mass dials or sundials on their walls, and the church bells would let you know when to turn up. Bells were very important. Meetings at Worcester Council were called by the bells of St Andrew's, Glover's Needle, in the days before clocks, and for quite a long while afterwards. In fact, the church had pretty much a monopoly on time. Bells from churches, monasteries, convents and friaries rang throughout the day to guide monks, nuns or friars to their various religious services like matins and evensong and ordinary people knew these services and used those bells to regulate their day. It helped them decide when to take breaks and when to pray. Imagine standing in the centre of Worcester in, say, 1423 when the bells started. You could hear the cathedral, St Helens, St Michael's next to the cathedral, St Swithin's, the Franciscan Friary in Friar Street, St Andrew's and many, many more. And all at slightly different times in the absence of clocks. If times of the day were fairly straightforward, you couldn't say the same for the calendar. Everyone knew when saints' days were and these acted as milestones in the year. 
People writing to each other would often date their letters two days after the Holy Annunciation or on St. Martin's Eve. But years were tricky. The legal year started in January. The church liturgical year started in Advent. And the calendar year started on March the 25th, not January the 1st. This was because if you wanted to start your dates from Jesus' appearance on earth, the year of our Lord AD, you needed to start at his birth on December the 25th and then work back to his conception nine months before, which of course brings you to March the 25th. This can be confusing sometimes looking back. I've just transcribed the will of a man who had Greyfriars built, Thomas Green. He signed his will in November 1499, and died in February 1499. Clearly, this is because if you start the year in March, then February 1499 comes after November 1499. We'd call it February 1500. This calendar lasted right up until the 1750s. But like all things medieval, the complexity didn't stop there. At that time, they believed in balance, so the time spent in darkness must be made to balance the time spent in light. Now that, as you'll have realised, is a problem because the amount of darkness differs with the seasons. Winter, lots of darkness. Summer, lots of light. What to do? Easy. Just have hours of different lengths. As the amount of light increases in spring, shorten the length of the daylight hours and lengthen the nighttime ones so that you always have 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark all year round. As we saw earlier, this is fine as time is not really a matter of precision. Until recently in our history, time was a matter of religion, not of science. Earlier I mentioned the railways. By the 18th century, science was gaining ground. Industrial processes had to be timed, increasing travel, commercial meetings, payment of factory hands by the hour. All these demanded accurate time. Clocks and watches had been introduced by then, but the need for one standard national time became essential when a national transport system came in, and that was the railways. Timetables had to be constructed which involved places far away from each other. It hadn't mattered that London time was ahead of Worcester time, often by as much as half an hour, but it did now that trains from each direction were due to cross at a precise time, say through Evesome Station, or a connection was to be caught in Ledbury to get to Gloucester. National time, railway time as it was called for a while, had arrived. So next time someone tells you that something is as different as night from day, you'll know better. Well, after hearing that, it's clear Phil doesn't only read, he writes very well. Meeting at Night is a poem by Victorian poet Robert Browning which follows the journey of its speaker to a meeting with a lover. It was published in Dramatic Romances and Lyrics in 1845. Browning composed the poem during his courtship of Elizabeth Barrett, his future wife, who was already a successful poet at that time. Barrett's father did not approve of Browning, and perhaps a hint of this can be detected in the hushed and secretive nature of the meeting. The poem is unusual for the Victorian era because it is so sensual and sexually suggestive in a time of moral and social conservatism. Jane. The grey sea and the long black land and the yellow half-moon large and low and the startled little waves that leap in fiery ringlets from their sleep 
as I gain the cove with pushing prow and quench its speed in the slushy sand. Then a mile of warm sea-scented beach, three fields to cross till a farm appears. A tap at the pane, the quick, sharp scratch and blue spurt of a lighted match and a voice less loud through its joys and fears than the two hearts beating each to each. A single night can transform the world of mankind or the world of just one man. John Plush looks at one event nearly 90 years ago that could have heralded an apocalyptic change to the world as we know it, but turned out to be life-changing for just one very famous man. As darkness crept over America on the evening of October the 30th, 1938, radio listeners across the continent were transfixed by a frightening report of mysterious creatures and terrifying war machines from Mars moving inexorably towards New York City. In their panic, many of those who heard the broadcast were unaware that they were listening to the work of a young drama director who would later go on to make such famous films as Citizen Kane and The Third Man. On that October night, however, many members of the American public were convinced that the war of the worlds was real. The following morning, Orson Welles awoke to find himself the most talked-about man in America. He and his radio drama company Mercury Theatre on the Air had converted a 40-year-old book, The War of the Worlds, written by English novelist Herbert George Wells, no relation, into a series of convincing news bulletins describing a Martian invasion of New Jersey. Reality radio, or as some politicians might term it these days, fake news. But some listeners mistook those bulletins for the real thing, and their anxious phone calls to police, newspaper offices and radio stations painted a picture of nationwide hysteria. By the next morning, the 23-year-old Wells's face and name were on the front pages of newspapers coast to coast, along with headlines about the mass panic his CBS broadcast had allegedly inspired. Staring out of that black hole through luminous disks, the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost oh, oh, heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a grey snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. The original War of the Worlds story recounts a Martian invasion of Great Britain around the turn of the 20th century. The invaders easily defeat the British army thanks to their advanced weaponry, a heat ray and poisonous black smoke, only to be felled by earthly diseases against which they had no immunity. The novel is a powerful satire of British imperialism. The most powerful coloniser in the world suddenly finds itself colonised, and its first generation of readers would not have found its premise implausible. Wells himself said many years after the event, I had conceived the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening and would be broadcast in a form such as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time rather than a mere radio play. 
Wells' production company made dramas for CBS on a weekly basis, so the gestation period for the production was terrifyingly short, and it proved a desperate scramble to get it ready in time for its transmission live on that October night. Without knowing which book he wanted to adapt, Wells had brought the idea to John Houseman, his producer, and together they had decided that H.G. Wells' novel would be suitable material, and gave instructions to Howard Koch, a writer recently hired to script Wells's radio broadcasts to convert it into a series of breaking news bulletins. Koch may have been the first member of the Wells company actually to read The War of the Worlds, and he took an immediate dislike to it, finding it terribly dull and dated. Even with the fake news angle, Koch struggled to turn the novel into a credible radio drama in less than a week. Three days after starting the job, Koch called John Houseman to say the War of the Worlds was hopeless and asked him if Wells would select a different story. Wells was not available, so they had to push ahead with it, trying to make it sound as convincing as possible. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our programme of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas... The transmission was to commence with what resembled a traditional evening concert of music, which would be interrupted by apparently real newsroom bulletins. One of the announcements, ostensibly from a government official, was even voiced by an actor who specialised in impersonating the then-president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. This was one of Wells's last-minute suggestions. The plan was to have a commercial break halfway through the transmission. This is standard practice in America for broadcasting fictional plays. But as the writers worked on the dialogue, the first act gradually became longer, while the second act became shorter, thus shifting the commercial break to well beyond the halfway point. While fictional material was expected to have adverts halfway through, news programmes, genuine ones, were never interrupted in this way. So unsuspecting listeners might have thought that this absence of a half-time commercial break somehow proved that it was a genuine news broadcast. It would seem that many didn't wait for the end of the transmission for reassurance, but instead abandoned it in a panic and set about saving their homes and their families from a terrifying extraterrestrial invader. And not just ordinary members of the public. In Orson Welles' own words... All kinds of people reacted in all kinds of ways. For example, John Barrymore, the very famous American actor, this I know to be true, was listening to the broadcast and, although he was a friend of mine, ceased to identify me with the show and believed implicitly that America had fallen to the Martians. And hearing this on his radio, rushed out into his backyard where he kept ten Great Danes in a kennels and released the dogs, giving them their freedom, crying to them as they ran in all directions of the compass, The world has fallen, fend for yourselves. At the press conference the morning after the show, Wells repeatedly denied that he had ever intended to deceive his audience. However, in a much later interview on television, Wells admitted that the broadcast was not made quite as innocently as he had originally claimed, 
as at the time he was fed up with the way in which everything which was heard on this new magic machine, the radio, was being swallowed, was being believed. He owned that the broadcast was, as he put it, an assault on the credibility of that machine. And he wanted people to understand that they shouldn't take everything they heard through any medium as fact. Although at the time he had told several people, if I planned to wreck my career, I couldn't have gone about it better. In fact, that one night, instead of ending his career, rocketed 23-year-old Orson Welles to notoriety and, ultimately, Hollywood. While we're talking about the science fiction of H.G. Wells, another much lesser-known novel of his deals with a celestial body much closer to Earth than Mars. Yes, we're back to the moon and Wells' imaginative Edwardian account of the first men to set foot there. In the book, an eccentric scientist, Carvor, who has invented a substance that cuts off the effect of gravity, builds a spherical spaceship fitted with a series of shutters made with this material to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth and employ the pull of the moon instead to draw the vessel to it through space. The story is told by Carvor's space-travelling companion, Mr Bedford, and we pick up the tale as their craft nears its remote destination. This extract from H.G. Wells's novel, The First Men in the Moon, is read by Martin Bourne. I remember how one day Carver suddenly opened six of our shutters and blinded me so that I cried aloud at him. The whole area was moon. A stupendous scimitar of white dawn with its edge hacked out by notches of darkness. The crescent shore of an ebbing tide of darkness out of which peaks and pinnacles came glittering into the blaze of the sun. Athwart this world, we were flying scarcely a hundred miles above its crests and pinnacles. But little time we had for watching then, for now we had come to the real danger of our journey. We had to drop ever closer to the moon as we spun about it to slacken our pace and watch our chance until at last we could dare to drop upon its surface. For Carvel, that was a time of intense exertion. For me, it was an anxious inactivity. I seemed perpetually to be getting out of his way. He left about the sphere from point to point with an agility that would have been impossible on Earth. He was perpetually opening and closing the Carverite windows, making calculations, consulting his chronometer by means of the glow lamp during those last eventful hours. For a long time we had all our windows closed and hung silently in darkness, hurtling through space. Then he was feeling for the shutter studs, and suddenly four windows were open. I staggered and covered my eyes, drenched and scorched and blinded by the unaccustomed splendour of the sun beneath my feet. Again the shutter snapped, leaving my brain spinning in a darkness that pressed against my eyes. And after that I floated in another vast black silence. Then, for a flash, Carver opened the window moonward and we saw that we were dropping towards a huge central crater with a number of minor craters grouped in a sort of cross about it. 
and then again Carver flung our little sphere open to the scorching, blinding sun. I think he was using the sun's attraction as a brake. I hauled the blanket from beneath my feet and got it about me and over my head and eyes. Abruptly he closed the shutters again, snapped one open again and closed it, and suddenly began snapping them all open, each safely into its steel roller. They came ajar, and then we were rolling over and over, bumping against the glass and against the luggage. Over, clutch, bump, clutch, bump, over, came a thud, and I was half buried under the bale of our possessions, and for a space everything was still. Then I could hear Carver puffing and grunting, and the snapping of a shutter in its sash. I made an effort, thrust back our blanket-wrapped luggage, and emerged from beneath it. Our open windows were just visible as a deeper black set with stars. We were still alive, and we were lying in the darkness of the shadow of the wall of the great crater into which we had fallen. The glass was dewy, and as I spoke I wiped at it with my blanket. It was impossible to distinguish anything. We might have been in a sphere of steel for all that we could see. My rubbing with the blanket simply smeared the glass, and as fast as I wiped it, it became opaque again with freshly condensed moisture mixed with an increasing quantity of blanket hairs. It was absurd. Here we were, just arrived upon the moon, amidst we knew not what wonders, and all we could see was the grey and streaming wall of the bubble in which we had come. Confound it, I said, but at this rate we might have stopped at home. Abruptly the moisture turned to spangles and fronds of frost. Can you reach the electric heater, said Carver. Yes, that black knob, or we shall freeze. I did not wait to be told twice. And now, I said, what are we to do? Wait, he said. Wait? Well, of course. We shall have to wait until our air gets warm again, and then this glass will clear. For a space I did not answer him, but sat fretting. Presently, first in patches, then running rapidly together into wider spaces, came the clearing of the glass, came the drawing of the misty veil that hid the moon world from our eyes. We peered out upon the landscape of the moon. That extract from H.G. Wells's novel, The First Men in the Moon, was read for us by Martin Bourne. A poem now by Walt Whitman, entitled Youth, Day, Old Age and Night. Jane. Youth. Large, lusty, loving youth, full of grace, force, fascination. Do you know that old age may come after you with equal grace, force, fascination? Day, full-blown and splendid day of the immense sun, action, ambition, laughter. The night follows close with millions of suns and sleep and restoring darkness. Thank you, Jane. We heard Jane's reminiscences earlier of her time in London working night shifts for the Metropolitan Police. Catherine's son, Ed, is a junior doctor working in Australia. 
and he also has a very close relationship with night shifts, as he described to his mum a little while ago. Catherine. So these are Ed's words. I work in healthcare as a junior doctor. Junior doctors have to do shift work until they qualify as consultants, who generally only come in overnight if there's an emergency operation. So far, I've been on varying rotors of night shifts for five years. They tend to be 12 hours long. The rotor that I currently work in schedules us to have our night shifts grouped together in one block of the year. I work seven night shifts, then have seven days off, and this pattern continues for eight to 12 weeks. In terms of the rhythm of the shift, it's mainly a dichotomy between very dull paperwork type ward jobs and acutely unwell patients at very short notice, most of whom you've never met before your night shift started. The busier departments that I've worked in have required me and two other doctors to cover between seven and ten wards, an arrangement which keeps us moving between wards to complete tasks and reviews as they crop up. When going into a series of night shifts, I try to sleep during the day before, and to tire myself out so that I can sleep during that day, I do an all-nighter for the preceding night. When coming out of a series of night shifts, I do the reverse. I try to stay awake for the whole day after I finish my last shift. So I wake up at 6pm for the final night shift, work until 8am, then try to stay awake until 9 or 10pm on that day. If the final night shift has been onerous enough for me to know I will inevitably crash before then, I sometimes try to sleep for two or three hours maximum in the morning before getting myself up just around midday. I have to admit there are varying results to this timetable. It is eerily quiet in hospitals at night, as most services are not up and running, so the scope for care is limited to immediate and life-saving solutions. There's a film up on YouTube taken by the CCTV cameras in the reception area of a small regional hospital that I've been seconded to for a couple of stretches. It's of a koala bear which walks up to the automatic doors, strides in, mooches around the deserted waiting room, past the office, into the back room and then strolls out. I'm rather glad I wasn't on duty there that night, although it makes a comical short film. On a practical level, it's quite difficult to stay in contact with your family and friends in terms of finding mutually convenient times to chat or socialise, and you're also limited to shopping after your shift finishes. So even though it's morning, you're setting off to go grocery shopping at the time when you're ready for bed. Unless you live nocturnally anyway, it will always be difficult to switch your diurnal rhythm. Last year, during one of my first night shifts, I walked into the junior doctor's staff room for a brief respite and a midnight lunch. I went to sit down on one of the sofas, which seemed to have been re-upholstered since the previous night, with large white cushions. As I began to sit down, there was a yell and the cushion jumped up. It was a sleeping doctor who'd lain down and wrapped himself in a white ward sheet to try and block out the overhead lights. All the cushions were doctors. Thanks, Catherine. That's really good. Uh, having known Ed since he was a little boy, it's fascinating to hear what he's doing now as a, a grown adult mm. and all that responsibility. Oh, mm. frightening. Well, moving on, 
If Orson Welles' radio experiment with The War of the Worlds was intended as a warning to listeners not to take everything they hear as true, this month's Audio Playhouse carries a similar message. Don't judge a book by its cover. We present Saki's Dusk. You know that time of day that's no longer day nor yet night. A gloomy conclusion to the preoccupations of the business hours, yet to be enlivened by the anticipation of the night's disport. A time of day when those defeated by life can go abroad unrecognised and uncriticised, camouflaged by the dusky cloak of semi-darkness. The evening in March that played host to the events that I am about to describe was such an evening. On my way home at the end of a disappointing day, I sat down at one end of a bench in Hyde Park. At the other end of the bench sat a despondent-looking elderly gentleman in an overcoat, buttoned up heavily against the cold. I could tell he was of no greater presence than the other shadowed occupants of the dusk, one of the world's lamenters who induced no responsive weeping. Chilly one tonight. Mm. I said it feels like we're in for a cold night tonight. Oh, yes. Heavy-looking bag. Mm. Shopping. Five minutes rest and then back home with it. Right. I'd better be off. Of course. Cheerio. I imagined him returning to some bleak lodging where his ability to pay a weekly bill was the beginning and end of the interest he inspired. His retreating figure vanished slowly into the shadows and his place on the bench was taken almost immediately by a young man, fairly well dressed, but even less cheerful than his predecessor. Oh. Are you all right? You don't seem in a very good temper. You wouldn't be in a good temper if you were in the fix I'm in. I've done the silliest thing I've ever done in my life. Yes? Came up this afternoon, meaning to stay at the Patagonian Hotel in Berkshire Square. When I got there, I found it had been pulled down some weeks ago and a cinema theatre run up on the site. The taxi driver recommended me to another hotel some way off and I went there. I sent a letter to my people, giving them the address, and then I went out to buy some soap. I'd forgotten to pack any, and I hate using hotel soap. Then I strolled about a bit, had a drink at a bar, and looked at the shops. But when I came to turn my steps back to the hotel, I suddenly realised that I didn't remember its name, or even what street it was in. There's a nice predicament for a fellow who hasn't any friends or connections in London. Of course, I can wire to my people for the address, but they won't have got my letter till tomorrow. Meanwhile, I'm without any money. Came out with about a shilling on me, which went into buying the soap and getting the drink. And here I am, wandering about with tuppence in my pocket and nowhere to go for the night. Right. 
You don't think the story outrageously improbable? Uh, um, no, not at all. I remember doing exactly the same thing once in a foreign capital. And on that occasion, there were two of us, which made it even more remarkable. Luckily, we remembered that it was on a sort of canal. And when we struck the canal, we were able to find our way back to the hotel. In a foreign city, I wouldn't mind so much. One could go to one's consul and get the requisite help from him. Here in one's own land, one is far more derelict if one gets into a fix. Unless I can find some decent chap to swallow my story and lend me some money, I seem likely to spend a cold night on the embankment. The weak point of your story is that you can't produce the soap. Oh, I jolly well can. It's just... Wait a minute. The, the other pocket. Oh, I must have lost it. To lose both an hotel and a cake of soap in one afternoon suggests willful carelessness. Hmm. Thanks for your help. It was a pity. The going out to get one's own soap was the one convincing touch in the whole story, and yet it was just that little detail that brought him to grief. If he had had the forethought to provide himself with a cake of soap, wrapped and sealed with all the solicitude of the chemist's counter, he would have been a genius in this particular line. In his particular line, genius consists of an infinite capacity for taking precautions. I rose to go. Hmm? What, what's this? Oh. Oh, no. Hey, you there, young man, I say. Young sir. What? The, the important witness to the genuineness of your story has turned up. What? Your cake of soap. Oh! It must have slid out of your overcoat pocket when you sat down on the seat. I saw it on the ground after you left. You must excuse my disbelief, but appearances were really rather against you, don't you know? Well, yes. Yes, I, I suppose so. And since I appeal to the testimony of the soap, I think I ought to abide by its verdict. If the loan of a sovereign is any good to you? Well, yes. Yes. Thank you. Here is my card, with my apologies and my address. Any day this week will do for returning the money. And here is your soap. Don't lose it again, it's been a good friend to you. Lucky thing, you're finding it. Indeed so. And let it be a lesson to me not to judge other people so by circumstances. Chastened, I headed back into the park to continue my journey home. I thought the elderly gentleman of my earlier acquaintance would have been back in his home by now too, but was surprised to see him just a little ahead of me, his eyes downcast. Hello again. Still enjoying the park? Uh, must have dropped out of my bag. You've not seen a cake of soap, have you? In Dusk by Saki, you heard Michael Dyer as the narrator, Nigel Buckley as the young gentleman, and Martin Bourne as the old gentleman. Dusk was adapted for Audio Playhouse by John Stanbury and produced and directed in our studio here in Wilds Lane by John Plush. And as the sun sets on Wilds Lane, it's time to say farewell to this look into night and day. 
So it's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. From Catherine. Goodbye. From Jane. Goodbye. And from me, Pippa. I'll leave you with one of Dylan Thomas's most famous poems. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learn, too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light.